0: Well, let's now open together to the book of Romans chapter 4. We're going to be finishing out chapter 4, the last couple of verses. As we've been making our way through, we'll be picking up where we left off last week. So beginning in Romans chapter 4, in verse 23. Let's read together now. Hear the word of the Lord. But the words, it was counted to him... We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, you have given to us such a treasure, such a gift that, that in your word we can hear the voice of our God. We can... Hear you speaking, Lord, purely, that that by your Spirit's working through your Word, it accomplishes your supernatural purposes in the lives of your people by causing that which is dead to live and opening blind eyes, Lord, transforming even those that you have saved into the likeness of Christ. And we pray that your Word would accomplish its good work this morning by your Spirit. I pray for myself as I proclaim your Word, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart. Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a repeated expression throughout Scripture. It really is a central truth of salvation. And and that is this Psalm chapter 3, verse 8 says it Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah proclaims this from the belly of a fish in Jonah chapter two, verse nine. He says again, salvation belongs to the Lord. When we come all the way to the end of the book in the book of Revelation in chapter seven, verse nine, John tells us this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, what is it that they cry out? That This scene as all the nations have been gathered in before the throne of God worshiping, what is it that they are worshiping and proclaiming? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so as Paul has unfolded the gospel in these first four chapters of Romans, we, we, we just only need to reflect on the things he's told us to see how central this truth is. How, how, how important this truth is to the gospel message, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is true for all Christians, for all people. Our salvation is not from us at all. If you've believed anything the Apostle Paul has said in the early chapters of Romans, you must know this. Salvation does not come from me. I don't contribute anything. It is entirely of the Lord. The only thing I contribute in this whole thing is sin, rebellion, unbelief, unrighteousness. That's, that's, all the way, that's all that I bring to the table, and yet God's mercy, God's grace reaches all the way down to the bottom of that abyss. As Paul has shown us, all humanity thrown in a prison cell at the bottom of the abyss of filth and rebellion and the wrath of God, and God in his mercy reaches all the way down To us, to the the bottom of those depths, to bring us out of the pit and gives to us, as we have seen, his very own righteousness. Yes. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And so in chapter four, Paul now has been pointing to the life of Abraham, showing this is how it works for everybody. There's nobody who's outside of this. There's nobody who's contributing to their salvation in any way. Salvation has always been a gift of God's Grace And so now as we come to the very end of chapter 4, Paul's going to draw our attention, and I, I want to draw our attention as well, to God's activity in our salvation. There's many ways we could approach these verses, as with anything as we go through Romans. There's a million different things we could be saying about it. Uh, we, could, we could just decide to stay in Romans for the rest of all of our natural lives, and we'd still never plumb the depths of all that's here and its glories. And so we have to pick something to focus on, and, and, I, and I think it's important for us to see this God's activity in our salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And, and we often think of God's activity in our salvation as it relates to Jesus Christ, right? We, we think of his coming in the flesh. We think of his sinless life. We think of his death on the cross. We think of his resurrection, his ascension into glory. We think of his sure return, and of course, all of that is essential, Without all of those things, we don't have the gospel message, that message that saves. We even often think of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, when it comes to our salvation. His his applying of the finished work of of the cross to the life of the believer, his indwelling the believer, his empowering the believer to live a life that pleases God. to to accomplish those things that that God has called us to, to even transform us as we prayed into the likeness of Christ. But we also need to consider the vital activity of God the Father in our salvation. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the, the activity of God the Father in our salvation. So God the Son agreed to come to be incarnate, to take on flesh, to live a sinless life, to die as our substitute for our sins. God, the Holy Spirit, applies this Christ-accomplished redemption to the life of the Christian. But the purpose of all of that, the purpose of what Jesus has done, the purpose of, of what the Holy Spirit has done, is to actually bring us to the Father. We see this in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. When Peter says God here, it's the same thing that that Paul is saying uh, in our passage. He's talking about God the Father. The the purpose of what uh, Jesus did was to reconcile us to God the Father. And so in these three verses, I just want to point out uh, really six activities of God the Father Almighty in salvation. Uh, I I hope it encourages us. When when we consider this, when we consider this this statement that Scripture makes, salvation belongs to the Lord, it should be fill us with confidence. It should fill us with joy. It should fill us with peace. And I pray as we as we see the activity of God the Father on our behalf, that it will strengthen us. It will encourage us. First thing we see is that God reveals his gospel. Look again now at, at verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Again, chapter 4, zeroing in on Abraham. So These were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but also for us. The first thing that we need to see is God didn't have to reveal the gospel to us at all. He didn't have to reveal anything to us. The only way we know anything about God is through revelation. As we saw in Romans chapter 1, there is general revelation. This, This revelation that comes to every living creature. Every person that has ever lived, God has revealed himself in creation God has revealed himself even further in the creation of mankind in the very image of God. And Paul has told us in Romans chapter 1 this revelation is so very, very clear that no one has an excuse. All stand accountable to God because of the clarity of this revelation. God didn't have to give us that kind of revelation that we would even know there's a God. But he's done so much more than that. On top of this general revelation, God has chosen to reveal himself to particular people in what is called special revelation. God has made himself known in Scripture. God has made himself known in the person of Christ. And it's that revelation, that special revelation that Paul has in view here. And so Paul references... Genesis chapter 15, verse six, speaking of Abraham, it tells us Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what does Paul say about that statement? This is, that's beautiful for Abraham, right? Here's Abraham, here's this, here's this wandering pagan and God just begins to make promises to him and Abraham believes God and God grants him righteousness and right standing with God. That's great news for Abraham, but what does Paul say about the reason that that got written down? It wasn't for Abraham's sake, so he could have a little piece of paper to carry around with him and look at when he feels sad and and despair and go, okay, God credited it to me as righteousness. He says what? It was for our sake. It was for the sake of Christians that we even know that God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness. It's so that we would know the things that we need to know. It's so that God could reveal more of himself to us. So we would know there's only one God so that we would know there's only one people of God, that God only saves one kind of way, creating one people for himself, that we would know there's only one way of salvation. And so Paul's gonna tell us this later in Romans about Scripture itself. Romans chapter 15, verse four. What was written in the former days, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction That through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. That's that's what Paul's saying here as well. That that what we have uh, recorded for us in the pages of scripture is for our benefit. God in his kindness, and he didn't have to do this. This was mercy. This was kindness. This was grace. He chose to reveal to us. Not just that he would be willing to save someone like Abraham, but that he would save everyone who came to him in faith the way Abraham came to him. God is the one who has revealed his glorious saving gospel to us. This is an act of mercy that God would do this. The second thing we see of God in these verses, he credits righteousness. Look at verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him. We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And we've seen seen this word a couple times now in Romans. It's an accounting term that Paul is using. Saying that Christ's own righteous status is counted to, it is credited to the account of the believer. So he uses it again twice here in these two verses. It was counted to him. It will be counted to us. How is it, though, that this righteousness of Christ is imputed to us? How is it counted to us? How is it credited to us? Well, Paul has already told us in the larger context here of chapter four it is God the Father who takes the perfect righteousness of his Son and credits Christ's own righteous status to the account of the believer. In, in verses 5 and 6, in this same chapter, chapter 4, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So, so what we need to see in the way that, that, that the, the, the Christian is saved, the way that we are justified, given right standing with God, the way we are credited Christ's own righteousness, can, can you see in all of this how it's not a work we could ever do for ourselves? It's not something we could ever contribute to. It would be totally impossible for us to credit Christ's righteousness to ourselves. Even even here from an earthly perspective, if you went to the bank, and you wouldn't want to do this anyway, it wouldn't help you at all, if you went into the bank and said, uh, I would like to credit all of Jason's finances to my account, well, they'd laugh you out of the bank. You don't have the authority to do that. You've got no ability to do that. How could we ever think that we could just do something that would force God's hand to give us the righteousness of Christ? We haven't got the authority to do such a thing. It would be impossible for us. The guilty do not impute Christ's righteousness to themselves. That is not how it works. It would be like a convicted murderer standing up after his conviction has been handed down and saying, I pronounce myself free. They go, great, keep pronouncing it all the way all the way to prison. We don't have the authority to do that. No, it is God the Father Almighty. It is the the holy, righteous judge who takes the righteousness of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute sacrifice, and credits it to us. He credits it to all who trust in his Son, all who have come to him in faith. John MacArthur says here of this passage, I love this phrase, it will be credited It will be credited. That is to say, from now on, it's not a future reality. It starts now, and it will always be this way. Righteousness will always be credited to those who believe. Isn't that good news? At the moment of your conversion, at the moment that God gave to you the gift of saving faith and repentance, the righteousness of Christ was credited to you, and it will always be that way. Oh, well, it makes me excited. Next we see God, God must be believed then as the author of salvation. This, this verse doesn't say that explicitly, but the whole context, the whole way Paul has been unfolding the gospel tells us this. Who, who is it that will be credited this righteousness? This, this is a glorious gift. That's why the gospel is good news, to be credited this gift that will never be taken away from us this gift that we are so utterly undeserving about, but who is it that receives that? It's those, he says in verse 24, who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who, who is it that Paul's telling us particularly we have to believe right here in this verse? Who's the him here? It's, it's not just that we're to believe in Jesus, of course that's true, But Paul says here we must also believe the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So so unlike Judaism, Islam, other monotheistic religions, Christians believe in a triune God, one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even unlike some Pentecostal traditions, uh, which some of us in this church have been familiar with, and this church has had to deal with in the past, who claim that there is not a triune God, there is just one being who appears in three different forms. That's not what Christians believe. That's not what we must believe if we are going to be saved. We believe in three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, all-God, individual persons, And so what what we see in this passage, it's not just that we must believe the Lord Jesus Christ, and we must. We must also believe God the Father who sent Jesus Christ. God the Father who delivered Jesus over to die in our place. God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. As the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. We must believe. Not just believe in God, we must believe in the true God, the living God. It's a package deal. It's impossible to have saving faith. It's impossible to truly believe in Jesus Christ apart from believing in God the Father Almighty. And you can't truly believe God the Father without believing his son, Jesus Christ. They can't be separated that way. You can't take one and leave the other. And and even in some churches, they want to make it as though it's possible. We kind of don't like the God of the Old Testament. Let's focus on Jesus, our version of him that we've created, who is a very soft-spoken, effeminate guy who just loves us and wants to hug a lot. But we don't want God the Father. He seems mad. The Bible talks about his wrath a lot. We'll leave him alone. Or you have the other side, who says it doesn't really matter if you get the specifics right about the gospel, that Jesus was fully God in human flesh, that he lived without sinning, that he died as a substitute in our place to appease the wrath of God, that he rose from the dead. It doesn't matter if you believe that God is triune. All that really matters is that you're sincere. No, you can't have saving faith apart from the triune God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. That doesn't mean they're one person. It means there's total unity of purpose, total unity of will, total unity of mission. So we must believe in Jesus. We must believe in God the Father. He is the author of salvation. He's the initiator of all of this, he, it's his plan. He initiates salvation. Fourth activity of God we see is that he raised Jesus from the dead. Look as we go on in verse 24. Who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. God the Father powerfully, literally, physically raised Jesus from the dead. And there is no such thing as true saving faith that doesn't believe this. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is of singular importance in the Christian faith. We can never be saved without believing in the physical, literal resurrection of Christ by the Father. Paul tells us this later in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's essential that we believe this. Now, the problem is many, many want to say that we don't have to believe that. We don't have to believe in a literal resurrection, which, by the way, the world laughs at and thinks is stupid. That's why they want to find a way around that. We don't have to believe that in order to be saved. The only problem with that, of course, is the Bible, which says you do have to believe that in order to be saved. So no matter how good the person is, no matter how, how much good they've done in the world, If you don't believe the actual facts of the gospel message, you cannot be saved. And so there are are many who say Jesus was a good man. They they, they say he was a good example for us. We ought to hold to his teachings. He he was even a, a, a revolutionary figure that did much good in the world. But unless they believe that God raised him from the dead, they cannot be saved. Paul wrote these words to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And then he says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The, the Christian faith is, is a historic faith, based on historic facts, grounded in solid reality. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. And it's not just. Even if none of this is true, haven't we lived good lives? Haven't we avoided a lot of pain? No, Paul says we should be pitied more than anyone. It's essential that we believe the truth. God raised Christ from the dead. But notice, too, what he says about who it is that the Father raised from the dead. He didn't just raise Jesus, our example, from the dead. He didn't just raise Jesus, the prophet, from the dead, Jesus, the good teacher, Jesus, the humble servant. No, this Jesus, whom the Father raised from the dead, is our Lord. It means master, ruler, owner, sovereign. Paul didn't choose the word savior here. He he could have done that. He could have said, who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our savior from the dead. That's not what Paul said. He could have said that. John chapter four, verse 42 says, Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus' own name means Yahweh saves. Jesus is our Savior. It would have been perfectly acceptable to say who raised Jesus our Savior from the dead, but that's not what Paul says. He says, Jesus our Lord. To be saved, we must confess that Jesus is Lord. When we make that confession, what we're saying is we are, we are coming underneath his rule. He is our master, He is our king. We submit to him. He's not just someone who we hope to emulate. He is one before whom we bow our knee and submit our all. That's who Jesus is. The the risen, ruling, reigning, sovereign Lord. This is the one whom we must believe if we are to be saved. Believing in any kind of Jesus other than that one has no saving power whatsoever. So we must trust this Jesus, the one revealed in Scripture, the one who is Lord, the one who is raised by the Father. We must be the fa- believe the Father who raised him from the dead. And so why is it that the Lord himself would need to be raised from the dead? That brings us to the next activity of God we see. It was because God the Father designed that Jesus would die for our sin. He didn't just die because the, the politics of the day were bad for those who weren't in power. He didn't just die because of some mismatched power dynamics where the po- Romans had all the power, the Jews didn't have power, and so if you rose to prominence, and even within the Jewish class, the ruling uh, religious elites had the power, and anyone who, who threatened that, they were going to push him down. That's not, that's not the reason he died. Those were... Those were, humanly speaking, some of the things that were in play in people's mind. But what what is it that caused Jesus to die? He tells us in verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Delivered up. That's what's called a passive verb. Jesus was handed over, delivered over. Now, of course, there's a sense in which he laid down his own life that he wasn't just a passive victim in all this, that he, he wasn't just passively being handed over from one hand to the next. There's a sense in which he laid his own life down. He even says that in John chapter 10, verse 18. Of his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus did deliver himself over to death, but Paul is emphasizing that there's actually something else behind that as well. It's not just, remember we said, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there's complete and total unity of will. And so what's behind Jesus' handing of himself over to death, his laying down of his life? Paul is emphasizing here, it was the will of the Father that Jesus be delivered over to death. And so ultimately, it wasn't the Romans who delivered him over to death. It wasn't his betraying friend Judas who delivered him over to death. It wasn't Pilate or Herod or the Jewish religious authorities who delivered Jesus over. They were guilty, of course, but they were secondary causes. The primary actor at Calvary was who? It was the invisible hand of God the Father. God the Father Almighty delivered his son up to death on the cross. And why did he do it? It was for us. It was as Paul says here, for our trespasses. Isaiah told us that this is exactly the reason that this was going to happen, as he prophesies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 5. Which you know so well, he was pierced for our transgressions. Who's crushed for our iniquities? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's God the Father who delivers Jesus over to death on the cross, and on the cross he lays our iniquity on Christ. Later in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul's going to tell us, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why did Christ need to be raised from the dead? Why did the the cross happen at all? It's because Jesus, our substitute on the cross, bore the legal penalty for our guilt. As we read those early chapters of Romans, chapter 1, chapter 2, parts of chapter 3, as we see the desperate condition of mankind among whom we once lived, We who were in that pit, that filth shaking our fist in God's face, his enemies sinning constantly. It's all of that guilt that the Father places on the Son on the cross. Now, despite what some false teachings claim, giving really terrible interpretation of passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21 for For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. False teachers like prosperity preachers, the word of faith preachers, who love to make much of Christ on the cross becoming the most miserable of sinners. Oh, he became a murderer on that cross. He became a rapist on that cross. You think of any sin you've committed, Christ was guilty of that sin as he hung on the cross. Friends, that is a wicked, abominable blasphemy. Jesus Christ never, ever, ever sinned. He was never, ever guilty of sin. He remained the spotless lamb of God. He was never guilty of sin. He was the substitute sacrifice punished for our sin in our place. It is important that we get that right lest we blaspheme the Lord of glory. So it was our guilt, our condemnation, that it's placed upon him, the wrath of God that was against us, that God had been storing up because of our iniquity, was poured out on him in its entirety such that there wasn't a drop of it left for us. Christ, our substitute, was delivered over to death by the Father, yet he was without sin and although he was without sin and remained without sin he was punished for the sins of all of his people that is for for all of those who would trust in him for all who would believe it is all of our sin think of this every person who would ever trust in Christ from the beginning of time until the end of time all of our guilt put on him in that moment my guilt which it was infinite because it was against my sin was against an infinite holy god The guilt of my continuing sins. And the same for all of God's people, all who would trust in Him for all of time. Each individual's infinite guilt. The wrath of God stored up for that guilt, all poured out on Him in that moment. Who could comprehend? The physical agony of the cross, which is what we often think about. In fact, they invented a word because it was so terrible. Excruciating means from the cross because there was no adequate description for the suffering that the human went through on the cross. But friends, that was not the torture of the cross for Christ. It was this, our iniquity placed on him. The wrath of God poured out on him and And here's what we need to understand about that. It means the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ was no accident. It wasn't just some tragic event in human history. It's not something that we need to feel sorry for him about. We should feel sorrow for our sin. This was the design of the Father. As Revelation chapter 13 tells us, This was the design of the Father from before the foundation of the world. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, told the crowd this. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God the Father Almighty ordained that Jesus would die for the benefit of all of God's people, for all of God's elect. John John chapter six, verse 37, Jesus says this. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In John chapter 17, verses one and two, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Oh, this is glorious news that the father would plan and deliver the son over to death for our sin. Here's what it means. We are the gift from the father to the son. And the son loves us and died in our place so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be saved. How much assurance would come to us if we would really believe that? Glorious news. Finally, then, God was satisfied with Jesus' death for our sin. Verse 25, He was delivered up for our trespasses and what? Raised for our justification. Some translations say raised because of our justification. The, The resurrection of Christ is proof positive that His sacrifice was efficacious. That it worked. God delivered him up for our sins. He, he, the, the plan of God from eternity past was, take the sins of all of my people, place them on my spotless son, pour my wrath out on him instead of them, and then raise him from the dead, and they will be in right standing with me, credited his eternal, perfect, spotless righteousness forever. And the resurrection of Christ is proof of, positive, it is God's validation, it is his stamp of approval, it is his authentication that the death of Jesus did it, that full atonement was made for sin. Jesus' sinless life, his substitutionary death, perfectly fulfilled every single one of the law's righteous demands that we have failed at every turn to fulfill. So we are justified by the sinless life of Christ, by the death of Christ in our place, and his resurrection validates that that's true. It validates the success of that mission. I like what the ESV study Bible says here in this passage. When God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it was a demonstration that the Father accepted Christ's suffering and death as full payment for sin. That the Father's favor, rather than his wrath against sin, was now directed towards Christ. And hear this, and through Christ, the Father's favor was directed towards those who believe. Since Christians are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, God's approval of Christ at the resurrection results in God's approval also of all of those who are united to Christ, and in this way results in their justification. Friends, that is good news. If you, were, if you tuned out somewhere in the middle, what he's saying is, on the cross of Christ... Jesus made full payment for sin and what we see in the resurrection is God's favor, only favor. There's no wrath left directed at his son and since you and I are in Christ, all of that favor is directed at us as well. Our salvation is, is secure as Jesus is standing with his father. Take a deep breath. That is good news. Christ's literal Physical resurrection by the Father guarantees our justification. Again, justification is that legal pronouncement. Not guilty. In right standing with God. It's not just like you never sinned, it's like you always obeyed. And Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of that. When He died, we died. When He rose, we rose. And because He lives, we will always live. Jesus' resurrection proves that. We're not just made alive spiritually right now, but we will also experience a real, literal, physical resurrection to eternal life. Why is it that a truly Christian funeral, even in the most terrible of circumstances, is not a hopeless event? Why is it we are instructed, commanded not to grieve as those who have no hope? It's because of this right here. It's because of this promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Because God the Father Almighty raised Jesus from the dead, we can have full assurance of our faith. Full assurance of our salvation. And so salvation from start to finish belongs to the Lord. We can see God's initiative. We can see God's activity stretching from eternity past and the eternal plan of God before the foundation of the world all the way to eternity future in our union with Christ, our resurrection with Christ, our eternal life with Christ, all the way, eternity past to eternity future, all of it belongs to the Lord. And so when you think about your salvation, Christian, if all of this the scripture says is true, there's only one direction you can go with your praise. There's only one direction you can go with your thanksgiving. It's not towards yourself, All glory belongs to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is all of God. It is none of us. It wasn't 99% God and then 1% us that got us over the hump. It wasn't even 99.9% God and 0.1% us. It was all of grace. It was all a free gift of his sovereign mercy. So what do we do in light of that? What, what, what about us then? If it's not even point one, us. Do we just stand around and hope that he picks us? Is that how God has designed all this? When you read your Bible, is that your big takeaway? Just stand around and hope God calls your number. No, remember verse 24? These things belong to who? To those who believe him. So you might say, you just said we don't even do point one. Now you're telling me I got to believe I thought you said it was all God and none of us. Isn't believing a work? Isn't that something that we're doing? No, the truth is believe, belief, saving faith, is a response to the work of God. But even that response is generated by God, not by us. You, you didn't hear this and, and, and you're just so smart. You just see things so clearly that you went, oh, that's it, I believe now. No, natural man hates the things of God. They're foolishness to him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. What is not your own doing and is the gift of God? Faith. Faith. It's a gift that he gave to you. It's God who gives the power to trust him. It's God who opens our ears to hear and believe the gospel. It is God who credits to your account the righteousness of Christ. It is God who justifies you eternally. It is all him. It is all of grace. It is all a gift. Let me just close with these words from later in Romans chapter 11. It's no wonder that Paul continually, as he unfolds this gospel in Romans, just bursts into praise throughout the text. That's what our hearts ought to do when we see God's mercy and his kindness and his power to save. Just close us with these words Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Let's stand up together. Lord God, what more could we say than your inspired word has said? To you belong all glory and all honor and all praise from this time forth forevermore. Lord, there's nothing we could give to you to repay you. There's nothing we could do to earn your mercy or your kindness or your grace. Lord, salvation is all of you. It is a gift from you, all things from you, through you, to you. To you belongs all glory, and I pray, Lord, that that our hearts, as we consider this great salvation, would, would explode, even as our brother Paul's heart explodes with glory to you, because you are due all glory, and all honor, and all worship. And Lord, I pray specifically for those who are hearing my words today that don't know you. Lord, these glorious benefits that we have discussed, these... This amazing activity of you, our God, towards us to save us, undeserving sinners. Lord, they've not become recipients of that grace. I pray by your spirit, you would apply the work of Christ to their lives. You would call their name. You would save them. You would give to them the gifts of of faith and repentance and trust, that they would look to you. Lord, I pray for us, your people, that we would look to you, that we would rejoice in our salvation. Lord, in in dark days, in trying days, in days of of struggle and suffering, but Lord, even in the best of times, that we would look to you, that our joy would be be rooted and grounded, its foundation would be in you, our God, and your saving gospel. Lord, I pray we would trust in you in new and in fresh ways, Lord, in, in deeper ways. Lord, that we would live in the reality and the knowledge of your saving work in Christ and that it would give to us joy, it would give to us peace, it would strengthen us, that it would embolden us to share this gospel, to proclaim the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, to to proclaim the rule of you, the almighty God the Father, Lord, in this world, in this world that is rebelling against you and turning from you, in this world that... You've told us we will have trouble in, in this world that hates that message, Lord. Would you give us the boldness to do so? Lord, for your glory, for your name's sake, for the sake of your kingdom, we pray these things, we ask these things, we pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen.